If you would like to buy your own copy of Britney Spears' Blackout, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Natasha Lasky is a writer and filmmaker living in Chicago and author of our 33 and a third book, Britney Spears' Blackout. In part one of this episode, we discuss Britney Spears' 2007 album Blackout, which was released at a harrowing time in Spears' life. We discuss the album in relation to Spears' personal life, as well as in relation to pop culture. Then we'll look at the album's production and the public response to it, including backlash to Spears' vocal fry and the impact her literal and figurative voices had on popular music. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. It's Brittany, bitch. Uh, no, I, I, love I it. had to, I'm sorry. <laughs> really just setting the tone already for the show. I'm one of your hosts, Rebecca Morofsky. And I'm your other host, Wayne Khan. And today we're speaking to Natasha Lasky, the author of Britney Spears' Blackout, a book in our 33 and a third series. Thank you so much for being on the show, Natasha. It is truly thrilling to be able to talk about Britney for the next hour. Oh my God. Yeah, I can't wait. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. So just kicking off, why Blackout? Because she's got so many albums. What about this album specifically revived Britney's career? I think that there's a combination of factors that this album kind of brought to the table that made it, I think, her most important album or her most sort of like career reviving album. Part of it was in its sonics in that it sort of took a lot of the things that are uniquely Britney and really shoved them in your face. Like people have often described her vocal character as robotic or kind of artificial. And this album really like turns that up to 11. And it also sort of contains a lot of Britney themes, like being sexy, being in control, being fun loving, and also sort of navigating the surveillance hell that is the paparazzi and tabloid world. And so kind of dealing with all of these themes, I think makes it a really good album to sort of look at Britney's career more broadly. I think also it's Britney's darkest album, I would say, both sonically and in terms of the subject matter. And I think this focus on darkness and what makes her unique and what aligns her with the more marginalized people in society, I think would be very prophetic and was very ahead of its time in terms of how pop stars would connect to their fans going forward. And also how we see her now, where we see her as being resilient, as being not just someone who's super hot and a great pop star, but also someone who is a survivor. And that's how we'll remember her. So that's a very long answer, but we can get more into all of those things as we talk. I'm just picking up on one of the threads there. Could you talk about the state of pop music and celebrity culture and also internet fandom at the time because this is 2007 and so in my opinion we're looking at like a burgeoning kind of like stan culture slightly distinct from fan culture a different form of kind of paparazzi rising in terms of like internet music bloggers so i'm thinking of like just jared and paris hilton Mm. and then i was on live journal at the time so obviously the oh no they didn't gossip community oh yeah Um, yeah yeah exactly and then also obviously like youtube I think as best exemplified in this instance with regards to Britney, the leave Britney alone boy mm. who is now Cara. So Cunningham, but it's all good. There we go. Obviously, there's a real like mix of factors as to like what's changing around celebrity culture at the time. 
So if you could talk a little bit about that and also how that relates to like pop music at the time as well. Okay, so there's a lot there. I think let's start with music and celebrity culture and sort of the mainstream, and then we can dive into how the burgeoning stan culture, as you put it, begin to influence those factors. Because I think they're often in opposition, although their effects can sometimes be conflated. I think this is true of both pop music and of the tabloid scene at the time, but both were becoming much more industrialized and much more profitable in that landscape. When in times of crises, industries tend to rely more on sure things, big hits. You know, we're seeing this in the film industry right now with sequel mania and the rise of Marvel and all of that kind of thing. And so you see that in pop music as well at that time, because we're in 2007. The internet is becoming a bigger factor. We have Napster. We have LimeWire. We have people pirating in a much bigger way. And this is before things like Spotify have sort of disrupted and made it even more accessible and made the selling of physical records even less profitable. So people really turn to these producing teams who are these hired acts for big stars and who kind of shop their songs around. And there's plenty of examples of that, both with Britney and with other people. Toxic was famously written for Janet Jackson. And Umbrella by Rihanna was originally written for Britney. You get all of these songs that could be for anyone. That can be kind of disquieting, especially to a lot of pop music critics at the time, because it sort of goes against, oh, the pop star or the artist, the musician as a tour who's a singer-songwriter and brings their true feelings. If a song could be for anyone, what does that mean in terms of the artistry of it? So that's sort of like one sphere of what we're coming up against. And then with celebrity culture, in the late 80s and mid-90s, you get a wide series of conglomerations between like Viacom and CBS and Time and Warner and all that kind of thing. As these large media corporations conglomerate, they end up buying up a lot of gossip outlets like Us Weekly and Entertainment Weekly and E! and TMZ. And so they use these gossip blogs as a way of cross-promoting their various... It's a form of synergy, right? Where it's like, on ABC, they'll show a 30-second Us Weekly report. So we are seeing celebrity gossip kind of infiltrate all of these spheres that it shouldn't, in quotes, necessarily be in. And then meanwhile, paparazzi photography is becoming this huge, huge, super profitable industry, more profitable than it has ever been. Because of this innovation from Bonnie Fuller at Us Weekly, the editor-in-chief of Us Weekly at the time, who created stars, they're just like us. And so suddenly, a photo of Britney buying a cappuccino at Starbucks could cost like thousands of dollars, and people want to see that. People want to see celebrities getting gas and doing banal bullshit. We love that. And so with that in mind, people are buying up these photos for thousands and thousands of dollars. There's this whole generation of paparazzi that come up armed with like digital cameras that can capture thousands of photos in a couple seconds, that makes that industry explode. And so I think with those things in mind, this is sort of where Blackout enters the picture. And so you have this sort of dominant media narrative that I'm sure you're both and we're all aware of that is like, Britney's a train wreck. Britney is falling apart. Here's a photo of her with her head shaved. Doesn't she look ugly? Whatever, whatever. There's that whole narrative that's coming up. And then meanwhile, in the underground, you have kind of these fan blogs that have their own community. This community is primarily queer, although I think it's kind of hard to know because everyone is operating anonymously at the time. But having talked to a few stands that were active in that time, that was the general perception of how it was going. 
And they really related to Brittany because of her, her alterity, because of her abjection, because of all of these various things. And so you get a figure like Kara Cunningham, who is from the South, is from a rural community, is super femme, and is brutalized in her daily life. Seeing someone like Brittany kind of picked on in similar ways, she's able to create this kind of viral moment with Leave Brittany Alone. And of course, it's co-opted by the mainstream in ways that are horrifying to see now. But I think it's figures like her and the other stands that really stuck up for Britney in a way that allowed this album to have the longevity that it's had. And we see the power of stands now, both for better in terms of like free Britney, in which stan activism was really able to liberate her from this horrible arrangement. But, you know, there's also the stories about stands destroying people's lives and all that kind of thing. So I feel like that was really an inflection point in between. There's like the whole flip side of like restraining orders and whatnot. No, I mean, even just like that walkthrough of what the early aughts are like, it was just making me realize, damn, it was such a particularly brutal time to be a woman. Yeah, totally. For me, I feel like it was almost like a backlash to the 80s and 90s where obviously women were getting more representation in the media, more economic agency, obviously. So I feel like there was a backlash in the media because women were suddenly gaining positions of power. That meant that everybody had free license to brutalize them in public spaces. Yeah, definitely. And also for Kara Cunningham, there's nothing new about this. I mean, even stars like Judy Garland, this reminds me of her celebrity and that like people kind of saw how the media and the industry killed her and saw how she was treated and how she was sort of marginalized. And I think a lot of queer people particularly saw themselves in that kind of experience. And I think something very similar was happening to Britney. Yeah, definitely. Still is. Very much so. I want to talk about that, but I do want to talk about the album specifically because to be honest with you, like I'm like a huge Britney fan and I don't really know that much about Blackout as an album. So I am curious. You have mentioned that you're a huge Britney fan. What's the story with that for you? Or what do you think of as kind of the peak Britney era in terms of your own fandom? That's a great question. I mean, I just have memories of her like in a really tight red cat suit with some guy being like, I went to the bottom of the ocean to get this jewel for you. And then she's like, Kay, thanks. Bye. Yeah, that, that's amazing. <laughs> old school. Yeah. I'm a very old school Britney fan. Like I love him mm. one more time and give me more, I guess is on this album. Isn't yeah, it? for sure. Toxic. But I had no idea that Toxic was written for Janet Jackson. You totally am demystifying this production history for me. What do you mean by that? Did somebody else write it and say that they wanted Britney to sing it? Okay, so Toxic was written by these two Swedish dudes named Bloodshy and Avant, who are very iconic Britney songwriters. And this is sort of something that I wanted to talk about in the book because they did a lot of work on Blackout as well. They wrote Piece of Me. They wrote Freak Show. They wrote a bunch of great Britney songs. They wrote Toxic. They wrote it for Janet Jackson, but they mostly just wrote it and then tried to see who they could pitch it to. I mean, Mm. that's how it worked for Baby One More Time as well, right? Max Martin wrote Baby One More Time for TLC. And then they were like, fuck no, we're not going to sing Hit Me Baby One More Time. Like we're asking to be abused. That's crazy. Um, Let's just get a teenage girl to say it. Yeah, exactly. Totally. We have someone who's not a star yet who we can have say ridiculous things because they're trying to make it. I mean, of course, what Max Martin meant was hit me up on the phone one more time, but who knows? Anyway, so Bloodshine Vaughn, write Toxic. Toxic, super weird song, just 
to think about it. Like it moves from surf guitars to like kind of this Bollywood string sample. Britney is giving a vocal performance that's so insane. Like falsetto, you have these belting moments, you have kind of the classic croaky vibes that we all know and love. Britney's A&R calls up Bloodshot and Avant. They play a bunch of songs. They have Britney record a demo of Toxic. They listen to it. Britney's A&R is like, okay, we'll get back to you. They have no idea what's going to end up on the album and what's not. They end up taking Toxic, despite the fact that they were like, this song's probably too weird to sell. It wasn't a single. They just put it on the album. But then Britney's team found that that song was getting downloaded way more than all the other songs. And so with that in mind, they pumped it up in terms of the publicity around that song. And so that's sort of a little bit of the background of how Toxic came to be. That's something I really like about Bloodshine of Avant is that they are always sort of trying to break the rules, which they did again with Piece of Me, right? Where Britney's mm. team was like, don't write anything about her personal life. And then on their last day of recording, they're all burned out and they're ready to wrap it up. And then they're like, fuck it. We're mad about how Britney's going to be treated. Let's put this into writing in a way that she may not have been able to do at the time. And so that's a little bit of background around that. That's absolutely wild. I had no idea. I just have it's a classic. Thinking about that, so it's clear that this was like such a collaboration with a team of writers and producers, but I'm wondering, were there production choices for this album that Britney was making herself? Because it's such an influential pop album. That's a very complicated question because I think part of it is in the way that pop music is written about is that there's sort of always a focus on like who did this, who is responsible for it. And with Blackout, I think with all pop music to a certain degree, decisions are made in the moment. We don't have a record of every single thing that's ever happened in a pop studio. So it's hard to know who's responsible for what. So mm -hmm. it's hard for me to answer that question. We do know that this album is the first time that Britney's executive produced. And I think as far as I know, the only time that she's done that in her career. But at the same time, she wrote on only two of Blackout songs. So it's hard for me to be like, these forward-looking production choices were Britney's. Like she certainly had a choice in terms of who she was selecting to be on the album. And I think in terms of her vocal performances, there was a lot of agency there and her voice is sort of unmistakably hers in a way that retains her agency, even in moments where you might think that that's not the case. But I think something that's fascinating about this record is that it really makes you confront these questions because you have to be like, okay, so this album is kind of her most personal, but she also didn't write any of it. So what does that mean in terms of how mm. we think about this, in terms of what story we're telling about Britney and her artistry and her career? With that in mind, part of what makes it feel like a Britney album, even when she was doing less on it, I think it's fair to say, is that Britney was having such a terrible time in 2007 and she could not be in the studio as much as she could have been. The producers that worked on this album are writing for her with that in mind. They're like, we want this to be a space in which Britney can kind of escape the tabloid dramas of her life and be able to sort of jam out and not think about anything else. Or with Bloodshine Avant, like I was just saying, where we want this to be a space where she can say fuck off when she can't do that without getting eviscerated by tabloids in her real life. That kind of thoughtful collaboration, I think, retains 
what Brittany wants in mind, even if she's not necessarily making the decision, oh, let's manipulate my voice in this way on this chorus, et cetera, et cetera. You bring up such a fascinating point about how this album is so personal and yet it's questionable how much she participated in self-narrating. I feel like you could say that about her whole life with her fans as well. Like everybody did that whole deep dive into like her conservatorship. And there's like such a narrative about these really personal things in her life that she doesn't always have. She doesn't get to control the narrative in her own life sometimes. So it's very interesting. But one thing you also brought up, her vocal choices. I would love Mm -hmm. to talk about that more because you open the book up by talking a lot about the idea of vocal fry. Can you tell us about that and what the critical response was? Well, what is vocal fry for people who don't know what it is? I'm sure I have been demonstrating it unthinkingly throughout this conversation, but vocal fry is when your voice dips down lower, there's this kind of croaky texture that it can have. At the time that people were sort of quote unquote discovering it, or at the time it was becoming more popular among young people, which was in the late aughts, beginning of the 2010s, a bunch of linguists did studies that showed that this was becoming kind of a more popular vocal technique among young people. And it was slightly more popular among young women, but it wasn't, I was going to use statistically significant as if I know what I'm talking about in terms (laughs) of studies, but no, let that be. Many people use vocal fry. I remember listening to something on This American Life about how people were annoyed with the female producers using vocal fry. And Ira Glass was like, I use vocal fry all the time. I'm using vocal fry right now. And people sort of didn't know what to do with that. But I think vocal fry is neutral. It's a sound. It's not necessarily communicating anything inherently, but it became this moral panic among boomers, frankly, because it was linked with a bunch of these teen girl, valley girl type celebrities like Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, and Britney Spears. Britney Spears, one could say that vocal fry is kind of her signature vocal technique. The first words that you ever hear from her on One More Time is this like, oh baby, baby, but like with this crazy texture on it that makes it sound like this sexy, rusty thing. Because it linked the teen girls of society with Britney, who was this controversial figure, people were worried about, oh my gosh, will my daughter be talking like Britney, who I think sounds like an idiot? And it's like, let's unpack that. Why do you think that? That may be a you problem. So I think I write about, it sort of provides a nice window into the controversies around Britney's voice, because Britney's voice has been this kind of battleground on which our ideas about gender, our ideas about whiteness, our ideas about what makes someone a good singer, what makes someone deserving of their artistry, their place in society. It's really fruitful ground, I would say. What you were saying about pop music in particular and this album and production, I've always found it incredibly interesting because a lot of music critics in particular talk about authenticity and people like songwriting as if it's inherently a very valuable thing. And obviously it proves that people are talented. But Mm -hmm. as you have said, like just because perhaps someone who is a pop star has only so-and-so credits, it doesn't mean that they don't have a particular hold over their narrative or in making the album or single or whatever. But just because we're obviously not in the studio with them, we don't get to see any of that. Something I found really interesting over the past two years because I really got into (laughs) K-pop. Obviously, it's a very tightly controlled industry and people talk all the time about people essentially not having any control over the music. I found that really interesting. And speaking of narrative, so again, going back to like 
piece of me and probably her friendship with Bloodshine and Nirvana obviously influencing how that song was written. Could you talk about the build-up to Blackout, particularly in terms of her personal life? Because the narrative of like that particular song is the media's sense of ownership towards her around that time. I'd be interested to basically hear you expand on that. Blackout came out in fall 2007. That was sort of around peak Britney scrutiny. One could say that it sort of peaked with her VMA performance in September of that year, in which people were like, she did a bad job. And so she was clowned on for all sorts of kind of ridiculous reasons within that sphere. So sort of working backwards, she divorces her husband, Kevin Federline, earlier that year in March 2007. And then I guess also a major thing is that in October of that year, which is around the time that Blackout comes out, Brittany loses custody of her kids, which is really, really brutal for her, as it would be for any mom. And then also in February of that year, she famously checks into a rehab facility and then checks out the next day. And then the day after that, she shaves her head. So she's recording Blackout throughout 2006 and 2007, I think more throughout 2006. And so there is this sort of media firestorm, particularly after she gets married to Kevin Federline and has her first kid, there becomes this firestorm of scandals around her. And I mean, some of them, I mean, when you get into the question of like whether something deserves to be a scandal or not, how much of a scandal is it if you shave your head? Scandals thrive on moral panic, as do all tabloids. People participate in celebrity culture because they believe these characters illustrate morally how we should be living our lives. And so Britney becomes this character that everyone is really interested in or becomes this symbol for all sorts of cultural questions that people have about white women's agency, about quote unquote white trash, about mental illness, about drugs, about all sorts of different things. And the album exists with that surrounding it. And you hear it certainly in Peace of Me. I think that's the most overt way in which that's discussed on the album. But throughout the album, there's always the presence of spectators, even on Give Me More. The whole premise of that chorus is that everyone's watching me dance on the dance floor and I say, give me more. And those little moments occur throughout the album. So there is this like real sense. And the album is scary. Like you hear all of these little voices everywhere. It's not a comforting listen. Obviously, you know, it's a dance classic, but it gives you that sense that there's sort of people everywhere and you don't know who they are. And it puts yourself in Britney's shoes. You have a sense in a small way how it must feel to be surrounded by so many voices commenting on your activity all the time. And creating moral panics around your every move. As yeah. You said. Right. <laughs> She's really not the first woman celebrity to be cast off as a terrible mother. You bring up a really important point that we often use these very public women figures as a way to cast light on the moral panic du jour of whatever the current generation is struggling with. I mean, this happened to Courtney Love too. That's immediately who came up in my mind. I mean, even building up before that, before Kevin Federline, you think about it, and the media was literally bullying this like 16-year-old girl because she broke up with Justin Timberlake. When you really think about that, an entire nation was relentlessly harassing this teenager about her breakup. It's just so weird. Yeah. And it's like, what were they expecting? They're going to get married? 
they're the teenagers, not us. <laughs> no, I know, but as you probably remember, like they genuinely vilified her. JT has a lot of explaining to do in his life. Yeah, that's <laughs> very true. It's also interesting because the first Britney that I remember is the Britney of Blackout and the Britney of Circus. I was about 11 when Blackout came out. And as Britney was in this firestorm, I was like a child. Like even I knew what was going on. Even though I wasn't engaging with media, it wasn't like I was like turning on e-entertainment news as an eight-year-old. but the character of Britney in this time was such a prominent symbol that even a kid would know that she shaved her head. I think that's really illustrative. And I feel like at that time in my life, I was still figuring out what it meant to be a girl. And I think there was so much messaging from mainstream culture and from the adults around me that are like, don't be like Britney. Britney's who you don't want to be. And so it took me growing up and sort of returning to Blackout and to the Britney of this era to be like, maybe Britney is someone who's survived this mass vilification. Britney is this resilient person. She's worth looking up to in all of these ways. In some respects, she should be dead, just mm -hmm. given what has happened to her. It is kind of a miracle. I I, wrote about this in the book, but in January of 2008, the Associated Press had an obituary prepared. And with the specter of Princess Di in the background, people were really nervous about Britney for good reason. And they should have been. They should have been nervous about the way she was being treated in the first place instead of her current state. It didn't exist in a vacuum, people. I share your memories. Like, I remember also trying to learn how to be a girl and getting this messaging from all the older men in my life, basically saying that Britney was a silly girl who wouldn't be relevant in 20 years. Clearly Mm -hmm. the joke is on them, but just like another thing that was a big component of all of this was just like undermining the idea that she had any actual musical talent whatsoever or any kind of staying Mm -hmm. ground in our culture. I feel like the consensus was people just outright dismissing her music as just sugary sweetness that wouldn't have any kind of legacy. Just zooming out a little bit, we've been talking about pre-Britney and you mentioned that there's like so many different eras of Britney, so many different Mm -hmm. chapters of her life. And now that you've written this book, do you feel like your perception of her has changed at all? Well, I think on a fundamental level, no. I think I started this book because I was frustrated with the way that people would talk about Britney as an artist. I felt like there were sort of these two extremes that people would go towards where either she didn't do anything, it was all her producers, she's just a puppet being manipulated by her corporate overlords or what have you, or she is this secret girl boss or like this conspiratorial, she's really been pulling the strings this whole time. And neither of those stories really felt right to me. I felt like it was important to me to want to make it So that I feel like this is often a catch-22 that's handed to women where they either have to present themselves as either victims or total agents in order for their experiences to be legible to a wider population. But I think it shortchanges the complexity of people's actual lived experiences in which no one is either entirely in control or entirely victimized. And so I didn't know what that would look like before I started writing the book, obviously. But I was like, there has to be something there has to be a more interesting story we can tell about this album. And the album invites that reading of it because it's so mysterious and because it is so ambiguous in terms of what it's trying to say. I will also say that I think 
I gained new appreciation for the old eras of Britney, which I was less familiar with going in just because I hadn't really lived through that time. It was really fascinating and really incredible to dive deeper into Oops, I Did It Again and Baby One More Time and sort of finding the deep cuts and really being able to trace her artistry throughout all of these albums. So I think my perception of her didn't change fundamentally, but I think it deepened my respect and appreciation for her. 